Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Jay Porter, product manager for radial engineering. First of all, the giant U.S. toy company Hasbro bought Entertainment One. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was a huge deal, $3.6 billion, but Entertainment One has all sorts of music assets, like Death Row Records, which is the home to recordings of the likes of Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and Tupac Shakur. But it also owns the Dual Tone Music Group, which has the Lumineers catalog, in addition to controlling catalog recordings from Brandy and Wu-Tang Clan and Chuck Berry and many more. So why would a toy company buy a UK music and publishing company? Well, good question. And that leads us to the next story. Universal Music sold 10% of itself to the Chinese company Tencent and a consortium of other investors. This was another $3 billion deal. And it was significant because Tencent is a Chinese company. It's under scrutiny by both the U.S. government and the Chinese government. And in order to actually make the deal happen, it had to bring in outside investors. So it brought in Hill House Capital and what I thought was very significant, Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is known as GIC. So originally this deal was going to be for 20% of Universal Music, and it might have gone as high as 30, but they eventually settled on just 10%. Okay, so why are these deals happening? Well, the music business is hot, it's making money, and it looks like it's going to make more money in the future. There's an indication it might be slowing down, but it's still not slowing down so fast that it scares away investors. So everybody wants a piece of it. Now, Tencent also owns a piece of Spotify, and it's pretty well entrenched in the streaming music business in China, but the fact of the matter is it brought in other investors, equity investors, and the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. That's the one that really gets me. So obviously... These type of investors don't get involved in anything that isn't going to make money. And it looks like the music business, at least for the near future, is going to be making some. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, while we're on the subject of company acquisitions, it's happening on the audio side as well. Focusrite just acquired concert loudspeaker company Martin Audio for $51 million. Now, Focusrite, of course, is pretty much entrenched in the studio business. But buying Martin Audio actually gives them a lead into the concert sound business because Martin Audio is a very respected loudspeaker company. One of the reasons why this might have happened is because the founder of Focusrite, Phil Dudridge, has known the founder and owner of Martin Audio, Dave Martin, since about 1971, and both companies are located in the same town in the UK, High Wycombe. So it seems like a match made in heaven for them. Now, if we go on a little bit, we find that the Italian speaker manufacturer, RCF, just bought another speaker manufacturer, Montarbo. RCF bought EAW and DPA in 2018. 
RCF for the longest time made just loudspeaker transducers. In other words, they're all loudspeakers. But in recent years, they've gotten into building their own cabinets and they've been very successful with it. So that was another acquisition. Then we go to yet a third, and all this has happened in the last month. The Paris-based private investment group Ardian purchased the majority share of Audiotonics, which is the parent company of Solid State Logic, Calrec, Digico, and Allen and Heath Consoles, as well as the IEM tech developer Clang Technologies and the audio manufacturer DigiGrid. Audiotronics is a big company. It employs about 550 people and has about 200 distributors and partners worldwide. That's a big company. And for Ardian to get involved, it had to be a big deal. There's no word on how much this cost. So it's kind of interesting. But now we look at these five acquisitions in the last month. Why is this happening? Well, nothing like this happens if A, there's no money. There's lots of money around. B, if the companies aren't making money, and in all cases, the companies were making money, and for the most part, it is a good fit, but it also gives you an idea of what's happening in the music business. Things are really looking up as compared to maybe 10 years ago when they weren't so optimistic. Streaming music has brought new life back into the music industry, and we're pretty much up to about the amount of money that the music business, the recorded music business, was making 10 years ago, which is a really good thing. People thought it would take a lot longer to reach this point. But then when you look at the concert business, that is taking off. It's on fire and it's making more money than ever. So when you look at these two facets of the music business, you put them all together, the music business in general, the total music business is really healthy. And I predict we're going to see more and more of these acquisitions. Now, the interesting part is You never know what's going to happen when a company buys another company. So what's going to change? Many times it just moves along on its own for a while. As long as it's making money, they just let it go. As soon as times get tough, that's when you start to see major changes happen. So far, everything looks like it's status quo. But if the downturn happens, like many economists are predicting, who knows what will happen to these companies that I just mentioned and to many, many more as times get tough. My guest today is radial engineering product manager Jay Porter, who worked as both a live and studio engineer before entering the world of audio manufacturing. Over the past 10 years while working with Prime Acoustic, Jay has assisted with acoustic treatment layouts for every type of venue, from home recording studio to the megachurch to rooms for artists like Jaquire King and Tommy Lee, Johnny Resnick, David Botrell, and David Rideau. Now at radial, Jay is one of the voices for the company's many, many cool new products. During the interview, we spoke about acoustic treatment systems, working with music celebrities on their studios, new direct box designs and products, and much, much more. I spoke with Jay via Skype from the radial offices in Vancouver. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get started in the business? Uh, I um, uh, started like a lot of people did as a hack musician and at a certain point realized I was better at making other people sound good than myself. Uh, went to school for audio engineering, started working full-time in live sound uh, for the most part, but also ran a recording studio on the side. And our the live sound company that I worked for, we had the studio that, that I became the manager of, and then we also had a retail side, which 
um, which I became a manager in as well. And uh, yeah, so worked at that for a number of years. Eventually got a job offer to come to Vancouver. Uh, I was from Toronto originally and started working for Is Technology, uh, the radar hard disk recorder. And did that just just for about a year, and it wasn't the job that I thought it was going to be. So ended up, uh, I knew Peter, the former owner of Radial, from my live sound days, and uh, came over to uh, Radial uh, after a year at Is, and took on the job as Prime Acoustic Product Manager originally. And that was 13 years ago now. Wow. For a manufacturer looking for someone to hire, you tick all the boxes off because just having the experience in live and studio and retail. I mean, usually you get one of those, or you don't get all of them. So that's pretty cool. Let's talk about front of house for a while. So you were doing that. So you learned about radial from your experience there. What products were you using? Was it mostly the direct boxes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, radial's catalog was much smaller back, back, you know, 14, 15 years ago than it is now. Um, so, uh, the company I worked for was exclusively JDIs when I started there and then we started bringing in some, uh, some J48s and then on the retail side, I started, uh, playing around with some of the distortion pedals and the bass bones and then, uh, the JD7, the amplifier switcher and then, um, the SGI, which is the, uh, guitar extender runs any length guitar signal you want over XLR. Uh, so those were the products that I remember best from my time there because they're actually all products I ended up owning from my <laughs> time there, yeah. uh, including my SGIs, which I still have to this day. So, but uh, yeah, it was the DI boxes for the most part. You know, back when I first started there, uh, the JDI was something that most touring bands would show up on our stages and see the JDIs and say, "What the heck is that?" And ah, don't worry about it. Plug into it. And as soon as they plugged in, they went, oh, okay. And, you know, it was shortly thereafter that it started. By the time I was done working there, everyone was like, oh, you've got radial, cool. But, you know, just in a few short years, I remember that tipping point happening of, like, people not knowing what it was to, like, people really happy that you had it. You know, it's funny because when I first started, and, and we're going back to the 70s here, and I was playing in a band but I had a degree in electronics as well. And I remember reading the original article from Dean Jensen about the direct box and using his transformer, which became the basis of the JDI. And I built my own direct boxes. Being in, on the East Coast, it wasn't easy to get Jensen transformers. So I went to Radio Shack and I got something, which is horrible, horrible. But there were no such <laughs> thing as direct boxes at the time. So everybody wanted to buy these things. And I shudder when I think back at it because they, they were horrible sounding. There's very little bandwidth, but the fact of the matter is they work. And then finally, when I got to play with the real thing with the Jensen Transformer in it, it was like, oh, God, now, now I get it. Now I understand what the, the big deal is. You know, the JDI has always been one of those things where I'd make it better. Yeah. No, I... Uh... Uh, there's, there's lots of different tricks to kind of change the sound of DIs, but if you just want something nice and clean and passive, you're definitely not going to beat that basic circuit design of a, a JDI with the Jensen Transformer. You started first with Prime Acoustic, and I'm curious about that because once upon a time, it was difficult to buy acoustic products that were pre-made. 
Mm-hmm. And I think Prime Acoustic was one of the first that actually came up with products that you can do that. Am I right? I mean, pretty early on, you know, uh, uh, there was a, a couple brands out there, probably only one well-known brand that, uh, that we still see around there today with the, uh, which is Orlex. Um, you know, they were certainly very early on as well. Uh, but yeah, prime acoustic was definitely early. I remember, you know, they had been out for a number of years already when I started in the business. I think Peter started, uh, the prime acoustic side of the company, within a few years of starting radial. So, you know, that's 20, 24, 25 years ago now. And so, you know, Prime Acoustic's been around for probably at least 20. I didn't realize it was that old. Yeah. Now, it started out with very basic foam kits, you know, the charcoal foam for the bedroom studio. So that's pretty much all it was seen until, uh, until my involvement. That's when we started getting into what the product lines become now with, um, you know, fabric wrapped glass wool panels and base traps and diffusers and all that stuff. But yeah, prior to that, it was just very basic, uh, cheap room kits with the with the foam product. But which we've since discontinued all of those, and we only do the the glass wool stuff now. Yeah, is it just in the fiberglass rather than like rock wool or something like that? Yeah, I would just do fiberglass. Absorption properties are better. Uh, we've explored using rock wool. There's some people that, uh, that do like rock wool. Um, rock wool is certainly a better product than foam, but it's not as well performing as fiberglass. So we've kind of stuck with fiberglass for now. Never know what the future might bring. We might get into some of those products as well, but for now it's just the fiberglass stuff. Yeah. I see a lot of people around in Los Angeles. There's a lot of people around town that are building studios with the recycled denim. Yeah. Um, first time I saw that was, uh, Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics, and I did um, uh, did all the rooms for NBC uh, at the Olympic Games. So they're all their temporary studios. They had like you know two big rooms and then like six or seven small edit suites. And um, it wasn't them. They used all Prime Acoustic product in their studios. But uh, one of the other broadcasters there did um, a couple studios and a gigantic sta- soundstage in the recycled denim which I thought was pretty cool. When I took a look at it, it was pretty neat. The problem I found with recycled denim, which when I explored to see if it would be worthwhile turning into a product is it just doesn't have the fire rating uh, that fiberglass or rock will have. And so for people to get the fire rating, they have to add a whole bunch of fire retardant to it, which isn't good either. Um, and a lot of people don't like the fire retardant stuff for health reasons and everything else. So, so at that point I backed away from it. So I like the fact that it's a recyclable and environmentally friendly product, but then you kind of counteract that by having to dump a whole bunch of retardant into it to make it, make it safe. And now with a big chunk of our business being public occupancy spaces, we have to worry about the fire rating. Really? So for acoustics, then, it's, uh, people are, are more aware of, of acoustics in that space? Oh, yeah. I like to hear that. That's great. Yeah, and, you know, the the fire in Rhode Island with uh, Great White, yep. it was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. That made every fire marshal on the planet kind of perk up their eyes and go, what are you putting on your walls? Um, so there's been a lot of... A lot of instances now where it's just you have to provide that proof. So we have, you know, spent tens of thousands of dollars on fire testing and have all that test data available on our website. So people that are installing it can can download it and be able to show somebody a piece of paper to say, yes, this stuff is 
class A or class one fire rated. How much of the prime acoustic business goes to like home theater? Not much, maybe 5%, which, you know, is 5%, uh, nothing to sneeze at. It's, it's, uh, definitely brings in some dollars, but, um, not as much as, as we, one would think. I think home theater, most home theater users just suffer without acoustic treatment. You know, we've had some, some dealers that are very successful with our little room kits and their stores. Um, and then other people try to sell it and they don't get anywhere because the wife acceptance factor is always the, uh, the big one with home theaters and having it hang on the wall and whether it's your wife or your other spouse or family members or whatever, they're like, I don't want my room looking like a recording studio. So, <laughs> yeah. so it hasn't been huge for us now. Granted, we don't do anything custom either. So I think a lot of home theaters end up doing something more on the custom side of things and have it not look so basic panels on the wall. You've set up home studios for a lot of celebrities, right? Music celebrities. Yes. Okay. So in doing that, they're used to being in the best studios in the world. What are they looking for? I would think they would be a tough client as a result. They are um, sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes it, it all depends who it is. Some of them are so sick of being in commercial recording studios that they really go they're going after a vibe more than than perfection um they know that their room's not going to be perfect and they just but they just want to be comfortable and they're tired of working in a clinical environment that a lot of recording studios can be um so they're very easy it's like they know how bad their room is and you ship the product they install it put it up on the walls and all of a sudden it's like oh this sounds amazing they're no longer using that pro studio as a reference um, other times it's like we can actually get, if a, if a room's the right dimensions and the right size, I mean, we can get very close to the experience that they're going to get acoustically in a, in a pro studio. You know, I'm sure you've been into spaces we all have that are some of the nicest studios in the world. And you're like, wow, it doesn't sound nearly as good in here as I thought it would. Yeah. So there's so much subjectiveness to it. So I'll usually start talking to them about how do you like a room? Do you like it more lively or do you like it more dead? Or, you know, uh, what, what, what other rooms do you like working in? And sometimes that works. Sometimes in the case of Tommy Lee, it was just like, I don't know. So it's like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just do it. And, you know, that was a room that was a very, um, uh, vibe was a very important aspect. I mean, one entire wall is glass, so you're obviously not going to be able to do much about that. So it was more just to put absorption where we can put it put diffusion on the back wall, get a cloud over the console, and uh, let's see where that goes. And loved it. And, you know, in, in the case of Tommy and some other uh, uh, higher profile guys, a lot of times I'm working with their engineer as well, which is great because the engineer can act as a little bit of a middleman. He can sell the artist on what I'm saying, and then he can also come back to me with uh, a buffered, version of what the artist feedback is, yeah. you know, in, in a way that makes sense. So I can truly say that everyone I've ever worked with has been very easy. I've never had anything more than a, hey, maybe we should add this one or two other pieces here or here. And, uh, you know, like, you know, probably a lot of the guys I've worked with are musicians, but, you know, in the case of Jakir King, you know, he's one of the best mix engineers in the world and he's shutting down his room at Blackbird and moving into his own space. You think he would be one of the toughest clients around. 
and he was so easy and you know we made the space you know good nailed it on the first try now he's smart enough he got all the product he made a couple tweaks from my original design but uh, other than that it's as i originally drew it out and you know he was quite happy with it so so maybe i've been lucky i haven't had to deal with too many difficult people but uh, uh but it's always worked out well do your clients understand the difference between acoustic treatment and isolation because that's the big one. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to put this treatment up and then I won't hear the trucks going by outside or they're not going to hear me when I crank the monitors. And they're two different things. Yeah. <laughs> it's the number one question we get at Prime Acoustic with people emailing in or calling. Sometimes it's, uh, it's just a simple, uh, uh, you know, incorrect wording. They go, oh, I need soundproof food for my room. Well, okay, we don't do soundproofing. We do acoustic treatment. We make rooms sound better. We don't, oh, yeah, that's what I want. You know, they, they think that soundproofing is acoustic treatment. And other people truly do want it to lock out the outside world or, you know, stop disturbing their neighbor or whatever it is. And uh, so I've done a lot of acoustic clinics all over the world uh, talking about, about acoustics. And one of the first things I do is the difference between acoustics and soundproofing. And you know, that no amount of soft, squishy stuff on your walls is going to stop sound from leaving your room. Think of soundproofing as like waterproofing. If water could escape your space, then sound's going to be able to escape your space. I've seen very high-end studios uh, be built, and people don't do simple things like sealed doors and cock electrical outlets. And all of a sudden, all that money they spent on soundproofing is gone because these little tiny cracks will leak a huge amount of sound. But that being said, if you properly control a room hopefully you'll be listening at a lower volume and uh, less sound will be inherently leaving the space because you are uh, working in a quieter environment but if you really want to soundproof your room with with our panels you'd need to fill the panels with your room and not have any room for the speakers yeah yeah right well it's funny i made a really big improvement in my room i have two windows and i like the fact that there's windows and there's light coming in but just by putting some quarter-inch plexiglass on the inside, on the frames, it made a huge difference. And considering that I'm in the flight path of Burbank Airport, which makes me crazy sometimes, it really made a big difference and, you know, it didn't cost that much to do. So it just goes to show you, you can make some improvements even though it's never going to be perfect. It's not going to be what commercial studios are like. Yeah, exactly. I hear there's a new direct box that's coming out. Can you tell me about that? For sure. So the new DI is the HDI, is what we're calling it, and uh, uh, a couple couple different meanings to that. Obviously, HD is self-explanatory, and also uh, because our head engineer is Hutch, figured uh, we'd use that HD to kind of work in either way. If you know Hutch, it's the Hutch DI. If you don't, it's HD is high definition. So when Hutch first came on board. We spoke with him about just doing a, a new DI box, to which he responded, do you really need another DI box? So obviously with his experience with Manly and Rupert Neve and uh, various other companies he's worked at, uh, we, we know and love the equipment he's created in the past. And I thought he might have an interesting take on on what a direct box could be. Uh, he, but I said he, he responded with the, do you really need a new DI? And I was like, well, something you would do would be really cool. And he's like, okay. He wasn't really quite buying into it. And he ended up going 
uh, going home that night and he came in the next day and he's like, he came in with a light bulb had gone off and he said to me, he's like, well, how do you feel about a DI with color? <laughs> and I said, well, if it's your color, then, then I'm all for it. Cause obviously with radial, pretty much all of our DI boxes are known to be clean. I mean, even our Firefly DI, which is our 12 AX seven tube DI, um, is still a very clean direct box. So, uh, long story short, what, what he ended up coming out with was uh, a DI with three different controls. So it has a, a level control, a color control, and a presence control. And he went to the guys at Jensen and had them do a custom wound transformer that is designed that when you drive it with the color control, it uh, quickly saturates and breaks up and gets a nice uh, uh, nice distortion quality out of the transformer, that overdriven, saturated transformer sound. So uh, also has an opto compressor built in that has two different positions. Just to th- turn that on, you can uh, uh, insert, insert an opto. And what, what the result of uh, numerous months of him playing around was a DI that can behave like our cleanest direct box ever. Um, but can also be uh, have that transformer go into saturation and be uh, almost like a like an MPEG SVT. It can get that that kind of grunt to it. So it's a really fun DI that with a couple twirls of the knobs, you can have something that's uh, very clean or get very quickly get a good sound and have it sound like an amplifier. Is the compressor before the transformer or after it? Before. It's interesting that it's an opto compressor, but it makes perfect sense. He originally just he threw the opto in there just uh, just because he had a little opto circuit in the back of his mind that he thought might be kind of neat. And uh, initially, it was, it was it's still very basic. You know, it's either on or off with two different positions of on. But uh, uh, the 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 sound that it created, especially on a bass guitar, was just very nice and soothing to the ears. So he spent a little while uh, tweaking it and making it even better. And it just adds a, a cool little extra, extra bit of uh, warmth to, to add to the, the front end of the comp or of the DI. Uh, Is that who it's targeted to uh, bass players? Bass players sounds amazing with acoustic guitar. And even because of the, uh, the saturation capabilities, even an electric plugged into it sounds like a, electric plugged into a nice nice clean amplifier hmm. yeah but uh i think you know with almost all of our di's you know outside of sound engineers the number one customer seems to be bass players they're the ones that tend to care most about having a di so i would say that our number one customer i expect will be bass players but definitely has a nice uh, nice sound for guitar players as well yeah but the thing about your di's is the fact that the low end is really well reproduced that's really the difference between radial and other DIs. It's the low end. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, one of the the, the DI uh, seminars that I do, um, particularly with the passive DIs, you know, going back to the, the Jensen, you know, Dean Jensen years ago discovered that there was transformers out there that were flat from 20 to 20. But at both the bottom end and the top end, um, there'd be phase distortion at the roll-off, like much like a like an EQ can have. So the JDI transformers flat all the way down to five hertz and up to fifty kilohertz. 
So it just there's still phase distortion at the uh, at the roll off points, but now those roll off points are so far out of the spectrum of hearing that they just end up with that really clean, flat frequency response at both the high and uh, bottom end. Didn't Radial buy Jensen a few years ago? Yes. They still operate as their own company, still down in Southern California, but uh, uh, but yeah, they are, are owned by Radial, so they they operate on their own and pretty much still their own little, like I say, little company, but uh, we kind of made that purchase, thankfully, to kind of secure our destiny and make sure we were always able to get transformers and nobody took them away from us or moved them offshore or something like that. They're still made in the U.S.? Yep. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, by the way, the, the HDI so has two different outputs, line-level output and a mic-level output, like a traditional DI would. And the mic-level output goes through the JDI transformer. So it has two transformers in the box, the one custom wound that's there for the, the color and saturation, and then the uh, JDI for that nice, clean way to uh, convert it down to mic level. What's the price in that, Jay? I believe no official price yet, but uh, it should street for seven ninety nine. Okay. Of course, there's a lot there. Yeah. What else is new that's coming out? And I say that because Radial always has multiple products. It seems like the, the company never comes out with the product just for the sake of coming out with the product. There's always a good reason behind it, and it's almost always solving a problem out there. For sure. So coming out with a Hotshot 48, which we have a product called the DM Hotshot DM1, which is a basically like an AB switch for your microphone. So a singer on stage singing to the crowd in between songs, he wants to talk to the other guys on stage who are probably all on in-ears at this point. He can hit the switch on the pedal and now his mic will be rerouted to a separate output and will only go to the other people on stage. It's been a great seller for us. Uh, it's being used on, uh, I would say, a majority of big concert, or big uh, stadium tours and uh, arena tours at this point. Um, but the issue with it is it's completely passive and hasn't been able to do a phantom power microphone. So the Hotshot 48 provides phantom power, so someone using a Beta 87 or something like that can um, uh, now do the same thing with uh, with a phantom mic. Very cool. Yeah, so that's uh, uh, in production right now. We're just doing the, the first tests and compliance testing and stuff on the first few pieces. So that'll be uh, that'll be new for Nam. The next product that we plan on showing, um, barring any technical difficulties with Apple, um, is a uh, uh, a product called the USB Mobile, and uh, we have a product called the USB Pro, which is for laptops, which is essentially a, a DI for your computer with a USB input and two XLR outs, a uh, very robust Pro Touring-friendly sound card for your computer. Um, so we're doing the same thing for uh, phones and tablets, where it'll have an A-type USB connector, like whatever, like the cable, basically, that's included with everybody's phone or tablet. Uh, they can plug into that. It will provide power and charge your phone or tablet and be a nice high-quality sound card with XLR outputs to go right to the mixing board or, or even to a pair of powered speakers. But, of course, with 
designing products with Apple, that's a whole new game for us. So we've, you know, signed our life away with uh, manufacturer's agreements and all sorts of things to make sure that we have all the right firmware in the box to be fully compatible with iPads and iPhones. So that's our only holdup at this point. It's everything's looking really good on that product. So I don't foresee any problems that should be should be at the show. And we're pretty excited about that one because people have been asking us for a number of years for that that solution. Yeah, no kidding. I can see why. The next product that we want to show uh, is called the PZ Pro. We've had a range of pedals for acoustic players for a number of years now. It started with the PZ Pre, which became a favorite of like guys like James Taylor, which is essentially a, a, a two-channel uh, acoustic preamp with pre and post direct outputs. Uh, so pre and post EQ. So it's a full EQ section and notch filters and everything else um, for perfect for the onstage uh, acoustic player. Um, unique to that product, we uh, added uh, piezo boosters. So both inputs, you can turn on and off a piezo booster, which switches the input to 10 mega ohms, which is the optimal input impedance for a piezo pickup. Um, so any player can plug in a piezo and actually have it sound like something you know piezos are incredibly difficult to make it sound good and that's always because you're plugging them into like a standard guitar input which is one meg so plugging it into 10 meg makes them nice rich full lots lots of bottom end um and because it's got two inputs you can either use it for instrument switching or you can use a guitar that may have a magnetic pickup and a piezo and you can use the two inputs and blend them together and then we came out with the PZ Deluxe, which is a single-channel version of that pedal. And now the PZ Pro is coming, which is the more deluxe version of the PZ Pre. So the PZ Pre always shared one channel of EQ across both inputs, which could work if you're using for maybe for the same instrument and had a very similar sound, but um, sometimes not so easy to... You really wish you had a uh, fully separate EQ for your other, other source. So it adds that second EQ, uh, keeps the pre and post EQ direct box outputs, uh, keeps the clean boost that the PZ Pre had, keeps the tuner output and the the throughput. But then also, not only does it have piezo boosters on both inputs, it also has a 48-volt phantom power uh, that you can turn on and off on uh, the first input. So guys using clip-on condenser mics like the DPA can now easily blend a condenser microphone with a pickup uh, for their acoustic sound. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's um, we have we haven't come out with anything for guitar players in a little while, and um, um, some people started kind of think um, you know this earlier this year I discontinued all of our distortion pedals, and people started to think, oh, are you just not building anything for guitar players anymore? And it's like, no, that's absolutely not the case. It's just the distortion pedal game is so saturated, no pun intended. You know, you walk into guitar stores and you see 9 million distortion pedals, and we had some great ones, but boy, is it a tough, tough market to uh, sell into. So I uh, thought we'd focus on what we're really good at and what we're known for, which is more the switching and preamps and utilitarian stuff. So uh, excited that this will be our first uh uh, first NAM in a couple of years where we have something that's, you know, brand new for, for guitar players. Yeah, that's a good idea. As you say, that's such a saturated market. 
and new ones come out all the time and i always scratch my head thinking there's lots of guitar players out there but and they all buy multiple pedals but even so you know at some point you have to think god is it worth it yeah no absolutely um i just got back from uh, a couple trips i was in australia and then i was in uh, japan and going into some guitar stores there where almost the entire store was pedals floor-to-ceiling glass showcases just filled with pedals and so i don't even know where to, where to start <laughs> yeah yeah i hear you okay jay last question what's the best piece of business advice that maybe someone imparted to you or you learned along the way oh hmm good question I think uh, 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 probably one of the things I've learned here is um, you always have to listen to what your customers are asking for. Now, be be prepared to. Uh, we've we've even been guilty of uh, maybe jumping to that a little too soon, and you know, one person asks us for something, and we go ahead and build it, and lo and behold, one person buys it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, always good to. Uh, to vet that customer request and and see if it's uh, you know see if it's a really going to be a viable product and see if there's a demand. But more often than not, if one person's asking for it, lots of people are going to be asking for it. So so rather than always building products that you want to build, listen to what people need and uh, you can come up with some good solutions that way. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.